Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. For those who might be new to us or unfamiliar with what we're doing on Sunday morning, we're in a series called Great New Testament Text, dealing with some of the favorite and well-known scripture passages that are key really in the Christian life. And today we're looking at becoming a word-filled believer. Many years ago, during the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 37, so about 18 years ago, FedEx ran a commercial. If you saw it, you'd probably remember. It was a commercial that spoofed the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks, in which Tom Hanks played a FedEx worker whose company plane went down on a remote, deserted island. And he was stranded there for years Looking like the bedraggled Hanks in the movie, the FedEx employee in the commercial goes up to the door of a suburban home, knocks on the door with package in hand. The lady comes to the door and he explains that he has survived five years on a deserted desert island during the time that he was there. He kept her package safe and he's gotten off the island and now he's delivering it to her. She gives him a simple Thank you. Then he said, hey, can I ask uh, what's in that package that I've kept safe for you? So she said, oh, yeah, nothing really special. She opens it up and says, uh, just a satellite phone, a global positioning device, a water purifier, and some garden seeds. <laughs> things that would be invaluable. Of course, he didn't open the package, but things that would have been invaluable to anyone that was a castaway on a deserted island. Unfortunately, most Christians have invaluable but unused resources, spiritual resources in this package we call the Bible. Very valuable and unfortunately for many, certainly not all, I'm not indicting you, often though unused spiritual resources. The Bible is inspired by God and absolutely necessary for the growth and the maturity in any Christian and all Christians' lives. So in today's great New Testament text, we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, becoming a word-filled believer. So we're just going to reread it and then work our way through these two verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We understand that word, inspiration. It is, it's literally translating that right there. God breathe. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, outbreathed by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, speaking of men, women, young people, the person who knows the Lord, that the man of God may be complete, mature, grown up, spiritually mature, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything that we need is available to us right here in the Word of God. So let's break this down here. First, the Scriptures teach us what is right. That's doctrine. That's the word doctrine. The scriptures teach us what is right. 
Now, the Bible tells us, not just here, but in other passages, that the scriptures are inspired. As I said a moment ago, that means God breathed. Of course, this is Greek. In the Hebrew, when Adam was formed out of the clay, out of the dust of the ground, God breathed into him and he became a living soul. Same word, different language, but same idea. God breathed into Adam and he became alive. God breathed in the scriptures and it is alive. It is God breathed. The scripture writers were not setting forth their own ideas. They didn't look around at humanity and say, we're a mess. We got to come up with some moral teaching. We got to come up with some principles. We got to come up with some religious teachings that will guide man or or we're going to decimate ourselves. That isn't how it came about. The scripture writers were not setting forth their own ideas or even parroting the teaching of their day. They wrote the exact words that God wanted and it was preserved for every generation to follow. By the way, preservation is implied or a part. We deal with it separately sometimes in, in doctrinal statements. But preservation is a part of inspiration. God has preserved his scriptures because they're inspired by him. So we have exactly what God wants us to have. God preserved it for us as well as all preceding or succeeding generations. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 is a companion passage that we ought to be familiar with. You are probably already knowing what I'm going to read. It's a companion text. It says, knowing this first, and that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, that's a word that, that has changed over time. We think of interpretation as reading it and saying, well, this is what it means, explaining what it means. But the word comes from the Greek word loosing. It's saying, literally, the Scriptures are of no personal origin. That's what it's meaning. The scriptures didn't come about of somebody saying, I need to deal with a topic and guide mankind. It didn't come of personal origin or I want to be a prophet or a writer of scripture. And so I'll write down my thought. It didn't come of personal origin. That's what private interpretation means, personal origin. Knowing this verse that no prophecy of the scripture is of any personal origin for prophecy came not by the will of man, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And you've heard me and probably others explain that the word move is the idea of breathing into as well. It's like a picture of a ship on a sea and the sail is up and the wind is blowing into the sail and moving that ship along. That's the word right here. These individuals were moved by God the way a ship is moved by the wind. God was guiding them in what they wrote so they could not not make a mistake and it was exactly what God wants us to have it is inspired by God second the scriptures are infallible infallible this God-breathed book that we're holding on to takes on the nature of the author just as if you were to write something it would be a expression of your personality if I was to write something it's an expression of my personality this book takes on the very nature of its author and God is omniscient he knows everything God is omniscient knowing all things and he is ignorant of nothing there's nothing that God doesn't know So the scriptures are infallible. He hasn't left anything out that is important. Now, you may have thought in your Christian life, well, I wish I just knew a little bit more. If the Bible dealt with this topic a little bit more, I'd be excited. 
It doesn't leave anything out that we need. He hasn't left anything out that is important, nor has he revealed anything that can be contradicted by new information in the future. You've heard me talk about this. Mankind didn't understand until modern times that there was a current that took from Europe to America and another current from the south that took ships from America back to Europe. But the Bible talks about that. It even talks about the currents in the air. We call it the jet stream. So the Bible contains a lot of information that has only recently been discovered by man in the scientific realm. Nothing that the Bible says is ever going to be in contradiction with truth. I mean, a real genuine scientific fact that man discovers. He hasn't left anything out, nor has he revealed anything that can be contradicted by new information. His infinite perfection also ensures that the transmission of his word is passed on to man succeeding generations without error. That's that preservation. So we have it. We don't have to worry, do we have the Word of God? Or does the Bible contain some of the Word of God? This is the Word of God. It's infallible. Doctrinal statements, we often talk about verbal plenary. I think we have that in our doctrinal statement that's online and in a doctrinal statement that we hand out to new members or have available out here. Verbal plenary, those are a little bit theological terms, but verbal means every single word. Plenary means in toto, the whole. You know, if you go to a conference, there are breakout sessions and there are plenary sessions where everybody goes to the plenary sessions. It means all of the Word of God. That means that the Bible is accurate and exact in its chronologies as well as every other matter. Verbal plenary means every word in all the parts, including genealogies or even science-related material. It's never been proven wrong. Science has been corrected by the Bible. Third, the scriptures are authoritative. So we see they're inspired, they're infallible, they're authoritative. They're the authority in our life. Not a pastor, he has a measure of authority. Not a church, maybe we'd say there's a measure of authority there. But the Bible, Bible believers say whatever the Bible says is so. Whatever the Bible says is so. Because man is in rebellion to God's authority. Man wants to say, whatever I choose to believe, and we certainly hear that today, whatever I choose to believe is so. Well, that's my truth. That may be true for you, but that's not my truth. We hear that a lot. Well, the Bible is the ultimate authority. It tells us what is truth. So man in his rebellion likes to throw off God's authority. Whenever a man sets himself up as the arbitrator of truth, he's a fool. He's a fool. Because only God is the arbitrator and even the deliverer of truth, and he has delivered it to us. The Bible is the exclusive source and final authority on salvation, on how to be saved. No church, no religious group, no well-intentioned, informed individual can add or subtract from the Scripture's clear teaching without usurping God's authority. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. 
For there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved, Peter says there. We know that the scriptures are the authority in salvation. Whenever somebody says, well, I think it's this, if it's in contradiction to the word of God, they're wrong. Scriptures are final in the authority about salvation. The Bible is also the final authority about how man is to live after salvation. Sanctification, we say, progressive sanctification. It is the final authority about sanctification. Second Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory. He's given us all things. We don't get to heaven and say, well, God, if I had a different family, or if I had married a different person, or if I had different parents, or if I had a better education. No, we can't say that. He has given to us all things that are necessary to, that pertain to godliness. We don't have an excuse because we have a Bible. All that we need with the Holy Spirit leading us. Consider the issue of personal pain. Probably every adult of any age has experienced either physical or certainly emotional pain. Consider the matter of personal pain. Must we meander through the theories of psychology? Literally, there are thousands of theories on psychology. Do we have to wander through this wilderness of psychological views to deal with the pain that we experience? Must we look for drugs that somehow lift our mood or alter our mood? Is that how we deal with our pain? Need we turn to Eastern religions to find some way to calm our souls through meditation or whatever? What futility. The Bible will teach us doctrine, which what is right. And James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 tell us to grow through our pain. That God sends trials in our life to grow us. And right doctrine helps us grow correctly. All human beings experience pain. It's endemic to the species. But we can grow through our pain through proper doctrine. God's recovery program for pain is sanctification. I don't know if you're following what I'm saying here, but God's, God's program for pain is growing in your Christian life, growing through your pain. We are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. The first thing we're talking about is this word that's used here in verse 16, doctrine. The scriptures teach us what is right. The second word is reproof. The scriptures teach us what is wrong. That's what reproof does. The scriptures teach us what is wrong through reproof. Word-filled believers must know what the Bible says about how to reprove others. The scriptures reprove us. They tell us what's wrong, but we go on and we have to help others understand what is not right. The Bible says we must reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering. We would say with all kinds of patience and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. So there will be a time when people say, I don't want doctrine. I just want my felt needs taken care of. I just want you to help me feel better. Give me something to feel better. And not only are psychologists trying to do that, but many times churches are trying to do that. 
But the scriptures are given to us to reprove us, to rebuke us, so we know what we're doing wrong, so we can begin to live right. And when you live right, you begin to feel right. Sound doctrine makes for sound living. Perhaps one of the most important elements in confrontation is the necessity of prayerful self-examination. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Ye who are overtaken at fault, first must examine themselves. Examine yourselves. Prayerful examination. God does not give us permission to remove splinters from the eyes of family members or friends or even church members unless we've already done some lumberjacking in our own life. Getting the telephone poles out of our own life before we're picking splinter out of somebody else's life is what he says. We examine ourselves and we allow the scriptures to reprove and rebuke us. And that only comes through careful, thoughtful, scriptural examination. So our job is to take the Word of God as a set of glasses, we could say, and we examine ourselves, we view ourselves as God says, this is what mankind is, and this is really what your problem is, allowing the Scriptures to rebuke us. Jesus himself considered this willingness to rebuke and chasten ourselves and others as an expression of his love for his own people. He says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. In other words, when I rebuke you, when I chasten you, when you know that something's wrong, repent of it. He loves us too much to continue to allow the the people that he loves, his own children, to continue in sin. So God rebukes us. So he gives us the scripture, yes, to tell us what's right, that's doctrine, but to tell us what's wrong, that's rebuke. Sometimes when we feel like we're getting rebuked publicly, maybe in a church service or personally when it's a family member or a parent to a child or a spouse to another spouse, we, we want to say, hey, forget it. I don't have to take this from you. We have a tendency to walk away. That is the wrong attitude. You've heard me say the people that have helped me the most in my life are the people who showed me my need to change. Where I'm wrong, those are the people who have helped me the most in my life. Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke. Mark Twain said this. I don't know if I should be quoting Mark Twain immediately after quoting Jesus, but Mark Twain does have some good truth here. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that are bothering me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. That's rebuke. He was admitting, I know what the Bible says and I don't like it. It's bothering me. Reproof or rebuke is when I take God's holy standard found in his word and I measure my life and I realize how much I fall short of God's expectations and I want to live up to those expectations. Then I ask him for forgiveness and I ask him for empowering grace because we can't live the Christian life in our own strength and our own ability. We live it as we see what God tells us to do and then we ask the Holy Spirit, empower me, fill me, cleanse me. Enable me. The scriptures teach us what is wrong, reproof. Number three, look at the next word, correction. The scriptures teach us how to get right. That's what correction does. If your kids are holding their fork and knives wrong or their pencil wrong, you say, let me show you how to hold that. I'll put my hand around yours. Here's how you write. 
Here's how you jab your fork. Now, here's how you pick things up with your fork. You show them what is right. You're teaching your daughter how to drive. Good luck. And you say, don't slam on the brakes. Just tap the brakes. Don't turn the corner too fast and throw everybody on the one side of the car. You know, slow down before you get there. That's correction. The scriptures teach us how to get right. That's correction. The scriptures have a third function in the life of a believer, and that's correction. They teach us how to make the wrong things in our lives right with God and right with others. They tell us how to handle things. Correction comes from a Greek word that means to make something stand up again. In other words, it's a picture of, of something that has fallen down that needs to be righted. It means to stand up again, to correct it, to straighten things out. God's word does that very thing. It straightens us out. That's what the word correction is explaining. It straightens us out. It helps us stand up again. We've fallen and the reproof comes, the rebuke comes, and now God's word doesn't just leave us there. God doesn't just leave us down. He straightens us up. He stands us back up. That's what this word means, correction. Suppose that while you're backing out of your parking spot here today at the church, you bump into a car. You do a little fender bender. You could speed away. Nobody maybe saw it. Of course, that wouldn't be the right thing. The right thing would be to wait for some of us who are the last ones to come out of the parking lot to come out and say, hey, I don't know how I did this, but I backed in your car. You get it fixed, I'll pay for it. By the way, there were three cars in the parking lot a number of years ago. Many of you remember Ben. He was our music pastor and youth pastor. There were three cars in the parking lot, one way down at the end. I didn't know whose that was. And then Ben's and mine. Ben backed into my car and backed up my fender. Of course, he's no longer here. I think he's unemployed in Greenland. (laughs) No, he's a pastor, but he was really embarrassed. Pastor, there was no other car in this lot except for yours, and I backed into it. And he let me know. I could have come out to my car lots of times. I'm the last person to leave. I could have come out of the car and said, somebody smashed into my car, the pastor's car, and they didn't even leave me a note. They could have left a note and said, Chuck ran in your car, and, uh, and I would have believed that, certainly. But he waited for me to come out, and we got the car fixed. Correction is the idea of restoring something. You take care of what is wrong. In doing this, you fulfill the meaning of the word correction. Restoration comes in the idea found in Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but he that confesses and forsaketh them shall receive mercy. I think it says. There are two words there that are the embodiment of correction. Notice what they are. Confessing and forsaking. Confession involves agreeing with your accuser, whether that be God or another person that you've wronged. You're agreeing with him. You say, God, you're right. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have thought that. I agree with you, God. It's not becoming for me as a Christian. Or your accuser comes to you and says, you know, you shouldn't have called me a big fatty or that I'm as ugly as a pail of worms or, you know, whatever, you know. You shouldn't have said that to me. It hurt my feelings. And you say, you're right. I don't know what got into me. It just slid off my lips. And you agree with them. That is the idea right here, that we are agreeing with them, confessing. And then we forsake it. That means to turn away from it. 
the most direct manner for confessing your sins is say, I was wrong. Describe the offense and then, will you forgive me? I was wrong, will you forgive me? That's the most direct scriptural way of dealing with an offense, whether that be with God or another person. I was wrong, please forgive me. That's different than an apology. An apology is such a broad statement, it doesn't mean anything. Very different than the way Ben handled backing into my car and the way Mayor Cuomo dealt with the sexual harassments. These multiple women now have come forward. He did a news conference and said, you know, I uh, didn't mean to make these women feel uncomfortable. That is the farthest thing from a biblical confession. He didn't admit that what he did was wrong. He didn't go to them and ask them for forgiveness. He didn't do any of those things. He just said, I didn't mean to make them feel uncomfortable. I, I didn't realize I was doing that by putting my hand in inappropriate places and pulling them in, trying to kiss them, etc. He knew it was wrong. He didn't apologize. Well, he apologized, but he didn't do it in a biblical way. Okay? One can be sorry that something happened, yet not assume any responsibility for it. And that's a classic example of it not taking responsibility for his own actions. The scriptures teach us how to get right. That is correction. The second part of correction, according to Proverbs 28, 13, is forsaking, which means ending that behavior and a willingness on the part of the offender to make restitution, as did Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus said, yes, I have taken too much as a tax collector from others. I'll restore it tenfold. That's restitution. So we've offended God. We say, God, I'll get this right. I'll get it right. I confess my sin. I ask you to help me. If we've offended someone else, we say, I will get it right. Tell me what I got to do. That's the whole idea right here. The difference in the attitude of King David when he was confronted by Nathan and the attitude of King Saul when he's confronted by Samuel is very instructive. What did King Saul do? When he was confronted by Samuel, well, he wanted to negotiate the outcome. Well, don't leave me. I'm the king here. If you leave me, if you rebuke me publicly, I'll lose my kingship. He tried to negotiate the outcome. What did David do? David did just the opposite. He accepted the consequences without protest. Without protest. Why? Because he accepted the correction. He was truly repentant. He was genuinely broken over his sin. We are to follow this third idea of, of biblical correction. We have to understand that that means reconciliation. And God's the author of reconciliation. The gospel is all about reconciliation. God specializes in it. And if we are to reflect him, we also have to become masters as staying reconciled to God and keeping reconciliation with others. Number four, the scriptures teach us how to stay right. That's that last phrase, instruction in righteousness. If we want to stay right with God, we have to have instruction in righteousness. Finally, Paul says the word is useful for this instruction in righteousness. The word for instruction is very picturesque. It is the Greek word paideia. Idea. It's where we get our word pedagogy, instruction, like uh, instruction of small children or 
uh, piano pedagogy, teaching them how to play the piano. It's very picturesque. It's defined as upbringing, training, instruction attained by discipline, correction that regulates character. So God instructs us to regulate our character, how we live, how we behave. It's instruction that, that changes the way that we live. We're always coming closer and closer to the mark of Jesus Christ. Children do not effectively rear themselves. They need pedagogy by their parents. They need instruction. Instruction in righteousness, but instruction in general. Someone must provide the instruction and structured oversight. That's why public schools are struggling, because they want to teach, but they don't have that discipline in the classroom like they used to have. And so there isn't that disciplined environment which is necessary for teaching and for changing character if there isn't a structured classroom. Paul thrusts here in this phrase, instruction and righteousness, is to disciple makers. We want to teach those who have some authority and influence over to become disciples. The disciple maker, like a mother who trains her child, must bring to bear all the instruction, all the accountability, and all the discipline necessary to see that young person grow in righteousness. Unfortunately, much discipleship fails right here because to train others, there must be a measure of discipline in our own life. We can't say, do as I say, not as I do. And that's true across all spectrums of teaching. We have to be examples before we can be instructors. Our own personal godliness, our own personal walk with the Lord, our own growth in righteousness has to be somewhat on display before others will want to follow. A word-filled believer knows what is right. That's doctrine. They possess a thorough understanding of Bible doctrine. Second, they can recognize what is wrong. Because they have enough scripture in their head and in their heart, they can recognize what is wrong and they know how to humbly confront those who are overtaken in that fault, including themselves. A word-filled believer thirdly knows how to guide a person in making the wrong things right again. That's what often counseling is, okay? This is wrong in your life. This is wrong in your family. This is wrong in your marriage. This is wrong in a, in a work relationship. How do we get it right? How do we make it right? How to guide a person in making the wrongs right again. They understand confession of sin to God and others is necessary and how to forsake that practice and build a new practice. Last, the fourth thing there, they know how to provide the diligent instruction and oversight that will enable consistent Christian living, instruction and righteousness. This four-step practice, these four key terms that God has breathed into, full of meaning, are very, very essential in our Christian experience. 
This four-step practice equips us to every good work, it says in verse 17. So in other words, we're not just floundering. We're doing what pleases God. We're growing in our Christian life. We're having an influence. We have purpose, maybe we would say in our life. It allows us to do every good work, and that makes us, what does he say, useful to God. We want to be useful to God. We want to be used by God. So we should really be taking these two verses, these four words that are pregnant with meaning and using them as a yardstick in our own life to measure where we are and where we need to grow in our own Christian experience. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this text, just so full of truth and and practical application for this growth in Christian living. Lord, we're glad that you rebuke us. We're glad that you correct us and show us how to stand up again. That you give us so much in the scriptures about instruction in righteousness and and how to live and how to keep growing and not stall on our climb to glory. Help us to be Men, women, yes, young people of the Word of God, just spending time each day soaking it up, allowing you to speak to us, allowing you to correct us, and then give us the grace. May the Holy Spirit have free reign to help us change, change that lasts and that pleases you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.